This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. I've been a practicing Buddhist for over 30 years and a psychotherapist for 20 of those years. And the reason I became a psychotherapist has relevance to the questions I start with tonight. Um, you need to know that the approach, my approach to these issues will be coloured by my perspective as a practicing Buddhist and psychotherapist. So, yeah. Uh, the, the title of the talk is Fear Around Integration, isn't it? Yeah, anyway, I'm not going to mention it much. Uh, but what I understand by integration is the understanding of that process by which one's life comes to be a natural reflection of one's insight. But this is far from easy, as anyone that's practiced for a number of years will know. Uh, I just recently I was very saddened to to hear that two people that I've known for God knows how many years were in a real polarised conflict with one another. And I've kind of felt my I heard that and I, I just felt very very sad. Uh, and uh, and it's not as though those two people have not practiced and put the work in. So I think it sort of points to how difficult the role that you've chosen to do uh, to actually try to, well, develop in a world that works against that development. Hmm. It's not that people don't gain quite a lot from meditation because you can see people do become healthier, even, dare I say it, happier. Uh, it's not, not, not a quality that I'm particularly interested in. But, uh, but real change, or should I say transformation, uh, well, that's a question I bring tonight. And those questions are, how come I, how come I, how come we get stuck and deadened in our practice? I have to allow for the fact that I might be the only one. Uh, <laughs> it's just me. But I'm assuming I'm not the only one here. So unless anyone tells me to stop, I'll just continue. So years ago, when I first practiced, start practicing uh, and came across Buddhism, I felt, well, as everyone does, quite a novice. I would listen to people talking about their experience and end up feeling as though my inner world was like a lump of concrete. It was as though everybody was up in the attic, as it were, and I was left down in the basement. And not only that, but sometimes someone had taken a saw and cut the stairs down, leaving me stranded in that basement. And since that time, uh, to use that metaphor, I've spent my time not so much trying to get into the attic, um, but trying to understand and rebuild the stairs to understanding the middle ground that lies between basement and attic. Okay, um, I sort of thing here, quite, quite good to stop here in a, in a sense, in the presentation of this image of myself. I'm implicitly revealing to you a number of things about that self. What I am betraying to you is a particular ego perspective, that is, up and down, inferior, superior, a view that I had towards inflation and deflation. Perhaps I was trying to get you on my side, suggesting a deflated ego is better than an inflated ego. Yeah. But whether it's an inflated ego or a deflated ego, it is still an ego position. <clears throat> mm. 
Added this, you would intuit from what I have presented to you the shadow that lurks quite close to the surface. This would be a tendency that manifests from a deflated sense of myself toward envy of those that I perceive to be up in the attic. There would be a judgment of those in the attic. No doubt if you had poked around enough at me, you would have soon smelt the stench coming from a murky reservoir of resentment. Nevertheless, the stairs still need to be fixed. My first, my first point then is that for integration to really take place, <coughs> we need to find a non-judgmental relationship to our, our particular ego perspective and the shadow it casts. So my belief, my fantasy, if you like, is that until the ego, the habit of self, as Bounty called it, or the selfhood, as Blake referred to it, is really recognised and accepted, it stands as an obstruction to the door of the emergent self or the possibilities in the psyche. Until that selfhood is recognised, objectified, it locks the door against real progress. So, what is not owned continues to determine who I am, who we are, and how we act. What is not owned controls our conscious and unconscious life. What is kept out, denied, controls us. So, I'm putting three things together, two I've mentioned, three of them, is ego perspective, self-view, uh, shadow, and I would say the acknowledgement and acceptance of those is the acceptance of your I, my, your karma. The situation we find ourselves in in the 21st century is very different from the context in which the Buddha lived. Uh, India at that time, and even today as far as I'm told, I've never been there. Um, I think it would kill me if I went there, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> is very rich in its understanding of other dimensions of being beyond our human sense world. <clears throat> There is and there was an acceptance of these other dimensions and a need in all of us to search for meaning and value. So even today I think, well, Bente himself is an example of that. You can still wander in uh, India. Uh, I think it must be getting harder because of the, the influence of the West, but nonetheless there, there is still an acceptance of that, that perception of life that there are other dimensions and that the uh, man seeking or the woman come to that although it would be very difficult for a woman I suppose to find to, to, to go wandering <coughs> so there is a very rich mythological and archetypal perspective that includes a cosmology of many gods devas and spirits in relation to all aspects of life and death there's a polytheism, yeah. very, very different from the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, the situation we find ourselves in today, to repeat myself, is very, very different. We live in a world on a fag end of everything, post this and post that. Uh, a world where Christianity is still a force, but very much struggling in the face of scientific critique and the ravages brought about by a Christian world tearing itself apart in two world wars. But there is still life in the old dog yet. We should not underestimate that its monotheistic perspective of a single God has on us even though we're Buddhists. It was responsible for treading underground the gods of the Greeks, the Celts and the Norse deities. 
until we finished up with a monotheistic universe dominating our imaginal landscape. So this is my second point, which is an absence of cosmology. That is germane, is that the right word? Or natural to, to the soil in which we are trying to work with ourselves. I hope this makes sense to you. Um, I'll say this twice. I'm sorry, I'm sorry about it, but I'm trying to put something into words. Whereas normal cognitive thinking cannot comprehend these events, myth encompasses and heals a sort of cognitive dissonance which is usually understood as the soul and which is understood in the language of metaphor or allegory for a person within this process. This in itself can contribute valuable lessons to our understanding and maturing of the spiritual life. That is, if we want to call it that these days. Uh, I'll read that again. Whereas normal cognitive thinking cannot comprehend events, myth-encompassing and heals a sort of cognitive dissonance which is usually understood as a soul and which is understood in the language of metaphor or allegory for a person within this process. This in itself can contribute valuable lessons to our understanding and maturing of a spiritual life. Okay. To put it another way, we are lived by powers that we pretend to understand. Personally, I think it would be worthwhile to understand those powers. We live very much in a secular world. Uh, I'm aware of the cameras on every street corner. I don't know if you are, but uh, we have this mm, fantasy that we're free. We're watched everywhere. Am I paranoid? I think I might be. <laughs> We're left with remnants of a Christianity, a religion critiqued by science and the rational mind, plus a powerful consumerist culture which is rapidly appropriating any spiritual symbols and images that we have left for its own ends. I think, personally, it would be useful to look at some of the work of poets that have been concerned with this, 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 these events and uh, how they have actually approached the underbelly that, uh, that is marked under our society and undermines our event, uh, attempts, I think, personally, to grow. But first, a nurse, nursery rhyme. Uh, so you can, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put poor Humpty together again. Remember when you kids did kids, kids love it, don't they? They curl over and over. But who is this Humpty Dumpty that children do sing about with such glee, really? Is he the original wholeness that some philosophers, or more like the alchemists, talk about in terms of a cosmic egg? <laughs> Which starts off whole and unbroken, that experiences like Lucifer the great fall from grace, fragmenting into an individualized soul, splitting at different levels, bringing exile, and that sense of brokenness that so many of us would attest to. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put whole, poor old Hempty together again. It seems that in the nursery rhyme that it's irreversible. Hmm. 
What we do know is what it's pointing to is the split that uh, we live in, living around is around us. Uh, a little kind of um, little conversation was reported to me of someone talking about, well, I think someone, one person was saying, well, there seems to be a lot of trauma around these days. Then the other person, I think, was much, much older, uh, probably come through the war, although, yeah. Uh, and said, more or less referring to, more or less saying, well, we, well, we just had to get on with it in those days. You couldn't afford to be concerned. And my, my response at that time was, I wonder if anyone's put two and two together. Perhaps there is so much trauma today precisely because people had to get on with things in the last generation. Another perspective, or should I say vision, this time from the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, from a poet who could... <clears throat> from a poet, very much, who could see the horror where the philosophy that made the Industrial Revolution possible was taking mankind. Summed up in one of his songs of experience as he mind-forged manacles of materialistic philosophies. I'll read the poem. I wandered through each chartered street, near where the chartered Thames flow, and marking every face I meet, marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every quiet cry of every man, in every inference cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, the mind-forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plague the marriage hearth. So, Blake in that first verse is making, I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames has flow and marking every, um, every face I meet, marks of weakness, marks of woe. Bringing the two together, the, the limited, constricted, measured world that we kind of try to work out, we try to control, creates the very marks of woe that we then end up complaining about. Uh, we could go on with the poem, but we're going to take ourselves beyond time. But Every verse is in relationship to that vision. Mm. Wonderful poetry. In another place, Blake says, he says, he says, uh, Now I a fourfold vision see, which is more happier, <laughs> the end part's the punchline. The fourfold vision is given to me. It is fourfold in its supreme delight and threefold in soft Buddha's night, and twofold always may goddess keep from single vision and Newton's sleep. So William Blake's vision consists of four states, uh, a fourfold vision, and the fourfold is, is, he calls Eden. A state of mental artistic fight and endeavour. He's not, uh, he's not keen on de detachment. He, he kind of is recommend that, that creative fight. Uh, not, not fight in terms of war, not corporeal war, but mental fight. Or I would say mental wrestling uh, with the things that are coming at you. And he calls this state divine imagination. Below that is a, what he calls a threefold vision. So there's the lover, the loved, and the child. Okay, three elements. 
uh, he calls Beulah. So it's taken from the Hebrew word meaning the married land. And Beulah is very much that place where we're experiencing dream, where the masculine sleeps. And it's a very feminine world. Uh, and we can have a kind of, we can have a sort of experience, momentary insight, as it were. And the trouble is that if you try to hold on to it, Blake says, well, if you try to hold on to it, you just go, you go through the self gate and you go straight down to single vision. If you take on the mental fight, you go up into Golganu to the city of art. But we better not say too much about it. <laughs> but it's such a fantastic vision. Um, so, so the married land is very much a state of merging with the other. It's a dream state. And twofold vision he calls generation. And this is where single vision is a general uh, generation. Is that, that kind of reciprocal relationship with nature, the world around you. Uh, um, whereas uh, single vision, Blake calls, well it's Blake's archetypal realm of hell really. Uh, and um, so, of course, <laughs> we live through the vision the other way around, as it were, he's coming down. Uh, it would be worthwhile pausing and briefly explore the first two of these states in relation to our theme of integration. If we to understand what Blake means by single vision, Newton's sleep, we have to confront the view that Newton embodied as an image for Blake. We have to confront the modern view that our culture is caught in, that is a view that the idea of subjectivity is confined to human persons. Only they are permitted to be subjects, to be agents and doers. The psyche is too narrowly identified with the ego personality. Also basic to this view is the persons is the psychology of Descartes. It imagines a universe divided into living subjects, i.e. human beings and dead objects. A dead world <coughs> outside the human subject, everything is dead. Added to this perspective, like a red rag to a bull, uh, was Newton's idea of the universe as a clock and the human being as a cog. A predictable, measured, marked out universe. Uh, and to add insult to injury was the philosophy of uh, someone called Locke, Locke at that time, who claimed that there was nothing beyond the five senses. So vision, single vision we can see is that experience of an isolated human being living in a dead and cold world. The image that Blake creates is of an old man with frozen features, cold, remote and controlling. An isolated experience of the world and others as abstract beings dead out there. Leading to the hatred of the other. I can't I read a book recently where this, the author, who I can't remember, was suggesting that hatred is not something that is germane to the instinct or nature. It is very much a culturally produced experience, which is a good discussion. So Urizen, who he came to name this figure of the ego, the self-you, uh, and if you take the word um, Urizen, uh, you just kind of play with it. It's your horizon. Uh, your horizon. And that horizon is, if you can imagine yourself in an egg, so we look up and see the blue sky, and... Yeah, so Eurizen's view is that he's inside that egg. That's our world. Nothing beyond it is wanted to be seen or kind of acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah. And we live in a world with beings in 
lots of eggs, little Humpty Dumpties, don't we? And we all bash up against each other. Yeah. So, how are we doing for time? <laughs> All right, okay, yeah. So Blake painted an image called Newton's Sleep. I don't know if people have seen it. Where there's this young man at the bottom of the, the sea and he's, 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 he's bending over and he's completely tired, you know. Well, he's totally immersed in this, uh, this, um, this map he's got in it. And all around him is all these beautiful sea creatures. Have you? You must have seen it. Yeah. And the other, the other image he created was of what he called the Ancient of Days, where you see this figure leaning over the clouds down onto the earth. And again, he's got compasses measuring things out. Uh, uh, but the sun is behind him and it's totally blotting out the sun. So, uh, a theme that I'm going to... Uh, returning to time and time again is we can develop twofold vision uh, threefold and possibly fourfold vision but the most important is this twofold vision isn't it is moving into a world of or beginning to give back or beginning to come into relationship to a live human human uh, universe where giving the sort of life, animating the world around us, things. To Blake, was not a, he was not a big world. Uh, he, the world was alive, dynamic, and he kind of talks in many places of different ways he responds to things. Just a couple of examples. When I see a thistle, he says, I see an old man grey. When you look at the sun, you, are, you do see a round disc or, or a host of angels singing hallelujah. hallelujah. <clears throat> so I think the most, most important thing about Blake, and unfortunately we can't spend too much time on it, but I think it's very, very relevant to what we're trying to explore, is Blake was the first poet to recognise the connection between the inner person and the inner dynamics of the outer events of history. Like the ancient Greeks, he asserted the different powers that live in us and through us. So, so just briefly, and it's not really doing any favours to him, but he developed as time went to uh, different characters. And the first two were... Uh, this character that we've seen is Eurizen, yes, or self-view, uh, a kingly, monotheistic self that wants to control the world. And he, the, the first one he, 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 he came up with, well, this is Orc character, which is Orc is a, a very much a, a being of the uh, underworld, isn't he? In the, in the um, especially in the Roman. Roman text, but for Blake he was the adolescent rebel, yeah. and at first, uh, in terms of historical events, Blake was very much for the revolutions that were taking place in the world at that time, but inevitably he saw that those revolutions turned, and uh, so you've got Eurism at 12 o'clock, and then as time goes on you get Orc at six o'clock, and then Orc becomes at twelve o'clock. So the the oppressed becomes the persecutor, uh, and it, so it goes on. And just with those two elements, that's what we've got. We've got this conflict, haven't we? There's nothing else. So he, what came in, he said, because he he was being dictated to. Uh, was this figure of loss, which is um, the soul turned back to front, isn't it? So where you've got soul, the sun, you've got loss, the character. And this character is very quick-witted, artistic, creative, engaging with 
these regressive forms that the, uh, that the monotheist ego creates. And he does that, because he's, he's a blacksmith, and he does it within the space of what he calls this other fourth cat to complete the mandala, is this character who she's called any Tharman. So any Tharman is, if you can take that, it's in harmony. So we need to be in harmony with the world around us in order to create within ourselves. So, so I'll leave it there. <coughs> but any Tharman is that feminine space in which the creative works. So another poet, I'm going to move on now, another poet, just to kind of add a, a different quote, is, um, is the poet at T.S. Eliot at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, uh, toward, mostly towards the end and the end of the First World War. So I'm just going to read you the opening image of a poem said to mark the beginning of what we know as modern poetry, although that's a century ago, over a century. Um, so this was the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And it reads, Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. <coughs> oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. What an incredible economic piece of writing. So much packed into that opening image, that's just the first three lines, let alone the rest of the verse. The city at twilight, like a patient etherized on a table. The city is etherized, put to sleep, like a patient undergoing an operation. The harsh lights of the city overwhelming the darkening sky, so that the twilight blue and the stars are lost to view, subsumed by the industry and the light of the modern city. We lose any sense of the stars of the gods, the light of the stars, the archetypal heavens, the gods are totally lost to the patient. The city, the city has lost its soul. The living connection with the gods and the archetypes has been lost, leaving the city soulless. Not only has the patient been etherized, but also he has given over the responsibility for his consciousness to doctors and professionals. There's always someone that's um, specialised in something or other. I could go on, but um, we've got to move on. But uh, I just want to acknowledge just uh, how much is in, those, in that, that poetry. How much is communicated to us about life in the modern secular world shorn of its living connection with the soul of the world. <coughs> and uh, you, you, you're right with me. You're right. <laughs> I've got one more poet. <laughs> My final poet really is relatively modern, an American in fact who I dare say would cringe at my introducing you to him in this context. His name's Charles Bukowski. 
Uh, I say that because he liked to portray himself as a gritty, hard-bitten realist. But every now and again, something slips out that betrays the sense of a deeper sensibility. Listen, what do you think about this? <clears throat> he says, there's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out. But I'm too tough for him. I say, stay in there. I'm not going to let anyone see you. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out. But I pour whiskey on him and inhale cigarette smoke. And the whores and the bartenders and the grocery clerks never know that he's in there. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out. But I'm too tough for him. I say, stay down. Do you want to mess me up? Do you want to screw up the works? Do you want to blow my book sales in Europe? <coughs> There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out. But I'm too clever. I only let him out at night sometimes. When everybody is asleep, I say, I know that you're there, so don't be sad. Then I put him back, but he's singing a little in there. I haven't quite let him die, and we sleep together like that with our secret pact, and it's nice enough to make a man weep, but I don't weep, do you? Both Blake and Elliot are like prophets drawing in the world. They present us in poetic form a vision of conditions of the world and how it impacts on our sense of self. Bukowski presents to us a pure image of self in relation to <coughs> a deeper sensibility. It's also an image of a subject self at odds with that sensibility. The subject lives in a world where such sensibility is on one hand dangerous and on the other embarrassing to the environment. The emergent self in terms of pain must be kept out of sight, must be kept down and starved of visibility and therefore kept vulnerable. There is a fear that it gets too, if it gets too strong, it will mess up the fourth the force self that lives in the world. If it comes to the fore, it will mess up his book sales, in which he has carefully crafted an image of himself in his environment. <coughs> Do you have a resonance with this in terms of living in a family, in a society, in a job? Of course, this can happen in any context where the environment and the subject are in conflict. In the family, in a work environment, etc. It can also happen in a community or a right livelihood situation. In fact, these situations, if it can be made conscious, it will be for the good of the process of individuation. Uh, so, I thought it might be useful to speak about my own experience of this. Um, in my early life, I was, uh, well, I trained as a carpenter and joiner. And I suppose to a certain extent I identified with being a carpenter and joiner and uh, worked for a long time and people used to relate to me in that way, understandably, through your job and what you know. Well, you know the story, don't you? Uh, and then I, after, well, I did a, I went to, uh, decided that I would try to go to college, and I did, I went to college, and uh, I studied for three years, and had, you know, well, happy, happy, <laughs> the best time of my life, anyway, um, uh, and, uh, you know, like, just have a chance to actually, to read in that sort of environment was fantastic, and to actually be pointed in directions where I never known, it was a whole world that opened up to me. But anyway, inevitably, as things, things come to an end. Um, and I didn't feel 
uh, I had done well enough to actually continue. I would have loved to continue and do more, but I, I got talked into. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. I got talked into going back to being a carpenter and joiner and to, uh, to run a carpenter company. Uh, and, uh, but I hadn't really acknowledged Bluebird. I hadn't really acknowledged that through that, during that time in, in the, in the, doing the study, something had changed in me. And it was no longer comfortable with that way. I could, I found I could not work in the same way anymore. Something had changed inevitably. And yet, people were very reliant on me uh, to, 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 to get set up and to actually work. And so I kept quiet. I kept quiet. I didn't tell anyone. Uh, and, well, I started experiencing incredible difficulty, pain, um, conflict really kind of at odds with myself that something in me wanted to become visible and yet at the same time my ego perspective was forcing it down, pushing it down and creating more and more this pain. <clears throat> and it got to the point where I would go into work, I'd only have to look at a hammer and I would feel sick. I'd feel physically sick. It wasn't... It wasn't it wasn't, you know, it was obviously psychological, but it was physical. Yeah. And um, it's like, and it was down here, sort of thing. And uh, sometimes I would go in, and I don't have to look at a trestle or, or, or a piece of wood, and my, my whole body would go into, you know, go into paroxysms of, of pain. I just couldn't do it. And I'd, I'd come away from work. And I was perfectly all right. I'd go and get a good old greasy spoon. I was eating away, perfectly all right. But go back to work and the same thing happened. So there's something was emerging there that somehow I had to take notice of. And other people weren't going to be able to take notice of it until I, I did, really. So there you go. It's a good example. But it, it, it can become quite physical. Yeah. Bluebird. <clears throat> Has anyone else had that experience? Yeah, yeah good, good. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a painful process. But a necessary one, you know. uh, In some ways, perhaps it couldn't. It, it doesn't mean to say it has to happen. But some people are lucky; they're able to, to fully kind of become visible with what is so central value. But I think for a lot of us caught in the world, caught in that sort of environment, with that, perhaps working in jobs that really work against it, it's a very important process that has to happen, unfortunately. I've got a friend, Damrati, who hates the thought of that. He really used to get angry with me for suggesting that everybody has to go through it. Years ago, I remember being struck by a book by Edward Conzo. You don't hear of him much these days. He's a very famous Buddhist scholar. Uh, well worth reading. The book was called A Short History of Buddhism. And at the time of reading this book, I was trying to write an essay of my own. And in this essay, I was attempting to explore some of the ideas I was wrestling with around the importance of ritual in everyday practice. In particular, how the ritual form of call and response plays such a cru crucial part in ritual and creative art and life. For example, the passing of knowledge <coughs> lost me place. 
Yeah, I'd love to. Anyway, the passing of knowledge from culture um, to, to, to culture uh, from, from generation to generation uh, and from poet to poet. Uh, and, um, yeah, and in jazz. Uh, in, in particular jazz. Anyway, what con... I won't get into that. Uh, anyway, what cons are out to say got Constantina, in my mind, into an image. So, I'll just go through the... In the first 500 years after the Buddha's Parinirvana, and this is a very, very, very short... This is even shorter than Konza's. Um, after the Buddha's Parinirvana, it was mainly... The, 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 the teaching was mainly centred on the figure of the Arahant and self-development. Yeah. So, in this way, we could say its focus was mainly psychological and included the period of analysis of mental states and a classification of texts and rules. That's the first 500 years. Uh, in the sixth, second period, gave it gave rise to a, a different attitude embodied in what is known as the Mahayana, yeah, the great wheel of Yana. The Mahayanists felt that the doctrine had become stale, that it needed renewing. It both moved out to and was influenced by other cultures outside of India. New texts were produced, new literature appeared, reaching out to other cultures. Whereas the first period was an oral culture, the second period was one that reflected the movement over to a literate culture. Culture, so you've got many, many, many new, new texts appearing. Uh, yeah. So we get the Arahant. So you've got heroes in each phase. You've got the Arahant, Mayana, the Bodhisattva, isn't it? You've got the Arahant. And then the third period that Kondra states is that of the emergence of the Vajrayana. And I think it's worth seeing the Vajrayana in that context. And the, the, the main hero of that was the city, wasn't it? He had powers. But I think what I kind of think in terms of spirit, matter, soul. Anyway, there you go. Nice image, I think. So the third period that Konza states is that of the emergence of the Vajrayana. The most important event in India in this third period was the Tantra, which, as you know, moved to, uh, spread to, and became so central to Tibetan culture. But it was an enrichment by way of the appearance of magical practices for the purpose of facilitating the search for enlightenment. So along with this development also the absorption of ideas from Aboriginal tribes. Uh, so nothing was kind of left out as it were, all was included in some way. In this the Tantra tried to assign an honoured, although subordinate, role to the spirits, sprites, fairies, fiends, demons, ogres and ghosts which were in the local and popular imagination. In our sense, all our regressive factors, they all need to be included somewhere in our practice. <clears throat> this further step in popularising the religion aimed at providing it with a more solid foundation in society. But as far as a Buddhist practitioner was concerned to make a difference between acquiring power and freeing oneself from the powers, i.e. the regressive factors in one life, I'm using basement language, you'll notice. Uh, acquiring power and freeing oneself from the powers that are alien to or against one's own being. Thus we find in the Tantra an emphasis on ritual. Ritual rites of purification and initiation, bringing with it a whole array of images and archetypes, figures of all shapes and sizes, which seize the imagination. 
So I'm suggesting that you've got this working with those powers that have been kept outside uh, uh, requires a ritual element of, and what I would say over and over again, it requires a relational attitude, doesn't it? It means a movement from seeing things just in terms of self. It means kind of creating a whole attitude uh, that is very, very different to our tendencies. Not only our tendencies, but the culture in which we live. I'll pass on, because how are we doing? It might be worth pausing here and just say what I mean by ritual. What I'm referring to as ritual is a ceremonial form in which the I or ego personality is brought into relation to the ideal, spiritual will, or drama of enlightenment, etc. Through the medium of poetry, music and or dramatic enactment. Central to this enactment is the element or the pattern of call and response where the ego or I responds to the call of the spiritual will, higher self, etc., whichever way you want to put it, thereby through the response and the communication of it connecting a soul connection to the world. If we look at our very, very, very short history, what we see is a development away from the Arahant ideal by the Mahayana. From the perspective of the Mahayana, the shadow of the Arahant ideal is over-concerned with self-development. You can almost see our imaginary Mahayanis wagging his finger at the Arahant and telling him or her that they are too psychological. They need to get out more often. In other words, they need a bigger perspective. But perhaps the Mahayana itself got a bit too concerned with the enlightenment of all beings. Is this heresy? and its desire to spread the Dharma, in its desire to spread the Dharma, it loses sight of those intractable, I think, perhaps, uh, and regressive aspects of the individual and the collective psyche, which if neglected, polarise with and work against the ideals. Perhaps the shallow side of this attitude is a tendency towards inflation. An individual with a very full philofax getting overextended and losing ground and carrying on running on low fuel of spiritual, psychological and emotional resources, commonly referred to as a burnout. How the Vajrayana responded was to put an emphasis on direct experience. So we bring the elements to come together in terms of the, the drama or the music or the, uh, or the poetry. And play, that's the other one isn't it? Play, very much. Perhaps the shadow of the Vajrayana is a dependency on the exotic nature of its expression while losing sight of the values and meaning that it's pointing towards. So what we saw in our look at the different perceptions of the conditions that make up the secular world was the poet's growing sense of lack in the world of the support for spiritual aspiration. The poems that we read show a read, show, show concern, show us concern of the wearing away of the archetypal mythological supports to a vision of soul. 
In the nursery rhyme, we became aware of the brokenness that emerges from that sense of separation. In Blake's work, we become aware of a critique of the rational and scientific philosophies of his age and our own. <clears throat> In Blake, we touch the daddy of regressive factors, the monotheistic ego, or as he calls it, the selfhood or noble daddy. Though it was a tendency towards a singleness of vision, a need to control its world, leading to a cold, grim, isolated self that lives in a dead and abstract world. Blake shows in his vision a way out of that world by building a relational attitude to the world and relating to it as a living and holy organism. A live world that mirrors back to us spiritual qualities rather than dead matter. And he says, how do you know that every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight closed by your senses five? Somewhere in you, you know that there are more than the five senses. There is a call to us to move towards what he called the divine imagination. T.S. Eliot also recognised the eroding of the mythological and archetypal perspective in his world. His imagery captures the starkness of a world caught in the grips of war, or perhaps the post-war. The image that we explore was from a poem he wrote, looking at the world through the eyes of what he calls, or what comes across as, a very ambivalent self. And in this, you can, there's a reference back to Hamlet, actually in the poem. This poem anticipates what he was to explore in the wasteland and the four quartets, which is an incredible example of a poet really exploring the shadow while capturing moments of the eternal breaking to, into... <coughs> and into a deprived and desolate landscape, our world, still recognisable today. Then we caught a glimpse of the relation of the emergent self and its neglect by a poetic persona more identified with a false image in the world, an experience which many of us would recognise. These then are what I would call regressive factors that we need to become aware of, you know, our own particular brand, as it were, and even learn to love. We need an ego in the world, but we also need to be able to choose to hang loose to its tendency towards identification with views, its tendency towards denial, repression and defensiveness. There's a need to hang loose to what is I and mine, to learn to wrestle with ideas and things that we find threatening and are other to our self-image and see them as gods crossing our path. Doesn't mean to say you've got to take them on, but you can wrestle with them. The angels come to play with us, are calling to us, to disidentify with some of our deeply entrenched habits. There is a real need to recognise the ego's tendency towards defensiveness, anxiety, and therefore a repression of anything that threatens our self-view. It's kind of when you think of a hand. The ego is like, you know, where is the ego? It's like, I can either be face the world with a fist, or I can begin to open... I can begin to open it. Huh? The ego's still there, but it's a diff whole different relationship. Uh, I can shake your hand, or I can come with a fist, or or uh, a open hand. Well, I'm trying. I've been trying to, uh, in my very long way, is to suggesting. It's a very simple message, really is that we make an effort towards internalising a ritual attitude. 
I believe in order to really acknowledge the ego view, we have to shift the focal point of consciousness towards the other. Moving the centre of consciousness towards nature, towards things, towards others, giving the world back its life, respecting, honouring it, loving it. We can work on this via the dream, can't we? Many times you have a dream and we so identify with the, um, the, the uh, dream ego, don't we? Well, and that's, that's usually the one that's closest to conscious life. So it's worth stopping when you have a dream is to just have a look at what, what the other aspects, the, the place, the context, the other people in the dream what that, that perspective is. In this way, encouraging us to disidentify with the monotheistic attitude of the ego self. Jung says somewhere that whenever he felt crossed or obstructed in the world, he asked himself what God, God was calling him. So, worth moving into that call and response attitude to the world around him. What's calling? What is the Tantra suggesting, or what the Tantra seems to be suggesting, when it asked us to see an enemy as a Bodhisattva? Perhaps in psychological sense, it asked us to see our projections onto others as part of ourselves, and to begin to move from you doing this to me, that I, I am perceiving this, uh, uh, to return the relationship. We need to look at these projections from a relational perspective. In Blake's language, to move from a single abstract view of others towards a twofold appreciation of what they might be saying about ourselves. What the Tantra seems to be saying from our basement perspective is to bring these regressive forces that we project onto others into relation to our aspirations. To make the ritual out of, to take the ritual out of the shrine room, so to speak, into the world. Perhaps ask, <coughs> perhaps we can, I suppose my, my, uh, my message is very simple really. Um, um, well, recently I thought I'd have a little experiment, so I've got a tree outside my house. And I, I thought, well, I need to try and get, get that work, so I, in the morning I take, I take, I take my peanuts, and I take them down, I bow to the tree, and I put peanuts there for the spirits of the tree. <laughs> but then I found that uh, the pigeons were coming in and going, <laughs> and I felt right in incredible resentment towards these pigeons. I had a real, a real prejudice against them, a real prejudice that I had to really, really work hard with. Uh, and gradually, until someone told, someone told me, in the end, uh, well, it's one way of looking at me, as I said, uh, they're wood pigeons, they're doves. That's one way, but they're not really doves. They're, <laughs> they're pigeons. And, uh, but then apparently there's a story where um, uh, Milarepa is with these pigeons and he sees them as um, darkinis, didn't he, or something. So I thought, felt better after that. But it's, uh, I have to work really hard with the, you know, with that, that seeing that and recognising that prejudice. Well, that, that's the point I'm making, and and it's important that you know that I just don't do that to it. That I somehow take it on board. That it is there. That it is part of who I am, and what, and what I am working with. Okay. So um, we're in relation to events in our lives all the time, and so I think to end. I'm, I'm sort of suggesting uh, it's worth asking what this event, what this conflict, what this, uh, what this obstruction, what this kind of uh, thing is happening in my life. It's asking me in terms of the development of those three attitudes. So, um, so I suppose on one, it, what does this event mean? Uh, in terms of my development. Uh, 
The second one is what does this event mean in terms of my aspirations to serve in the world? And then the third one is what does this event mean in terms of serving the quality of soul in the world? I think if we can ask those questions each time, then we might find ourselves with the right timber to mend the stairs. So the main point is becoming more relational. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.